It's an unfortunate fact that most linguistic theory is based on a few major European languages, especially English. And this actually damages our understanding of how the thousands of languages in the world might work. But there is one man who has spent his career trying to correct that balance. Robert Van Valen is one of the developers of Role and Reference Grammar, or RRG, a linguistic theory which aims to explain language by starting with some of the most unfamiliar languages in the world. In this interview, we talk about the fundamentals of RRG and what unites and divides the world's languages. I hope you enjoy it. If, if English disappeared and I had to speak Spanish from now on, how much am I really losing? And I find it difficult to sort of quantify that. You know what I mean? Yeah, when I was, uh, the first time I was in Spain was in, when I was, got out of high school, which was 1970, and Franco was still alive, and the Guardia Seville were still walking around Barcelona in pairs with uh, machine guns over their shoulder. It was, uh, that was the one country that I obeyed all the, I didn't even jaywalk in. <laughs> it was a new experience for me. Yeah, I could, I could imagine. I mean, I, I know that this isn't your, your, you know, your sort of field of expertise, but I mean, what, what do you think? I think the problem is I, I've never really had a really satisfying answer to that question about why it's important to protect kind of endangered languages, you know? Yeah, well, I, I kind of make the traditional um, argument that from a linguist point of view, these are unique creations which show us, every language shows you something different about the human mind and human language faculty. So, I mean, people say when you lose a language, you lose a culture, and to some extent that's true. Like, like for example, in, in Galician, they have this word, which is malosera, and the closest sort of direct translation that I can think of is basically shit happens, right? And, and it's the, the fact that this kind of word is, is, is a very, it's a very telling insight into the Galician culture, you know, how they sort of view things. And so, yeah, I get that. I get that. Yeah. I mean, I think foreign language study in general is crucial, um, not because you learn to, as a practical matter, to talk to more people, but rather you learn that the world isn't as your language tells you. That when you, it doesn't matter what the language is, you start learning it and you discover that the world isn't a preset inventory of entities that has different labels for different languages, but rather the entities themselves are different. <clears throat> and Edward Sapir back in the 20s wrote the truly liberating thing about linguistic study is that it, it um, liberates the mind from, from um, uh, the tyranny of absolutes. Because people, monolingual people, think that the world is as their language tells you. And once you start trying, you can take Spanish one, German one, French one, 
uh, you encounter, you, when you try to translate something, you discover that it, it's not like just finding the other word for the same concept, but this word overlaps your concepts. And you have to realize that there are similarities between things that you never thought there were similarities before, and there are differences between things that you always thought were the same. Yeah, um, I think I think one of the one of the really interesting places that this kind of appears is is when you start to look at colors, and you know I know that that's a massive cliche in the world of linguistics to to look at kind of color theory and and cognition, but but it's kind of it's it is a great thing to look at because it's so kind of simple and so essential to the human experience, and and like you said, that does show us, doesn't it, how how cognition isn't this kind of universal thing, right? You get into funny situations. I had a research project at the Max Planck Institute for Psycholinguistics a few years ago. We borrowed a, a, a video that had been made by a different project to study um, um, information structure in certain contexts. And it was a sort of a Lego movie with Mr. Green, Mr. Blue, and Mr. Red. And we, the four of us in the research group took the test out to uh, test with the languages that we were working on. And all four of the languages in that the group studied made no distinction between blue and green. They only had GRU, which is the term for it. So the speakers were watching this movie and trying to figure out how they were going to call Mr. Blue and Mr. Green because they had the same word for both. So it was, I mean, in European languages, you don't have this problem. And the thing was designed originally for a second language acquisition study on Turkish and German and Dutch and so on. And when we got out, with Native American languages and Siberian languages and African languages and Austronesian languages, we ran into this problem over and over again that people didn't make this distinction. So, so, so how did those speakers actually uh, make the, the difference? Did they use sort of comparative phrases like this is the color of leaves and this is the color of, of water or something like that? Like... No, they said, uh, we'll call this one Mr. Black and this one Mr. Grew. Basically, they just picked black as for the darker color and called him Mr. Black um, to get around the problem. But it was kind of amusing <clears throat> to run into this issue. I saw a, I saw a replication recently and... Um... I think it was in maybe in cognition, and they, you know, they they proved that Berlin and Kay were were mostly right about this, you know, the the ha there being like you know foci for the different kind of colors. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that the color was originally proposed as a test of the superior Whorf hypothesis, and it always struck me as a funny test. I mean, what what they're really about is not physical perception, but categorization. So we categorize two things as the same, and another language categorizes them as different. 
So, I mean, the example I give in class when I teach Saussure, who, by the way, was a radical relativist. He never gets brought up. Nobody says the Saussure is superior war hypothesis, but Saussure was as rat. I mean, he, he said there are no distinct ideas before the appearance of language. I mean, and the fact that the signifieds are arbitrary across languages is different concepts attached to different uh, words and stuff. But I give the example of um, the Mississippi, the Ohio, and the uh, Missouri. In English, those are all rivers. In French, the Mississippi is a fleuve, but the Ohio and the Missouri are rivières because a fleuve flows into the ocean and a rivière flows into another river. So if you ask a French speaker, are the Ohio, the Mississippi, and the Missouri all the same thing, they would say no. One is a fleuve and the other two are rivières. And if you ask an English speaker, are these things the same? They'll say, yeah, of course, they're rivers. <laughs> so, because I know that some of your work has sort of dealt with this question of linguistic universals, or, you know, especially related to, you know, some of the ideas of, of universal grammar. I mean, what, what do you think is the state of the art as, uh, in, as so far as linguistic universals? I'm not a fan of Chomsky's view, which you're pretty pretty clear on. Um, I, I the, one of the claims that RRG makes is that the more semantically motivated something is, the less cross linguistic variation there will be, and the less semantically motivated something is, the more cross linguistic motivation there will be. So to take an example, if you think of the problem of determining the proper conditions on the interpretation of a reflexive pronoun, so John saw himself, John talked to Mary about himself, um, John talked to Mary about herself. Um, <clears throat> there's two issues in the analysis of the reflexives. One is, what's the relationship between the antecedent and the reflexive? So is that, so basically in most theories, it's the antecedent is higher in the tree than the reflexive. Um, now I define that semantically, that is, actors bind undergoers, agents bind patients, not the other way around that there's a semantic, and that's universally, there aren't any exceptions of cases of, of, uh, of objects binding subjects or patients binding agents. Um, the other issue is how far away can the reflexive be from the antecedent? And English is very conservative. You can say John hurt himself but you can't say John told Mary to help himself. Okay, which is perfect in Icelandic. In Icelandic, you can do that. And in Japanese, you can do that and have even 
uh, the, the reflexive even farther away. So the question of how far away the reflexive is from the antecedent is, a, is not a semantic issue. It's a syntactic issue, and language is very dramatically along that dimension. But on the other dimension, they're very consistent. The more agent-like argument binds the more patient-like argument and not vice versa. So this, this, the semantically motivated part is basically universal. The non-semantically motivated part varies dramatically. Yeah, and I mean this because we, we haven't really spoken specifically about you know what exactly role and reference grammar is, but but in your in your in your PDF explanation, there's this great little kind of diagram which I think is the the visual representation of of what RRG is. So you, but the core of it, right, is this is this link between syntax and 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 semantics. Right. Um, and like I'm curious about you know could you could you sort of explain what RRG is, you know, in, in kind of in layman's terms, like compared to other types of grammar? RRG differs from other theories of grammar uh, in a number of ways. Um, one is the general perspective that it takes on language. And it, I mean, most theories start out from um, a set of a language or language or languages that the developer of the theory is familiar with. Okay. And so most linguistic theories that are discussed in, in the, you know, Western Europe, Britain, US, and so on, started from Indo-European languages or started more or less from English. And the basic ideas were developed with respect to familiar languages and then you try to extend them to more exotic languages. And RRG turned that on its head. So when Bill Foley and I were graduate students at Berkeley, we were studying I was studying Lakota, which is the language of the Sioux uh, Indians. Uh, Bill was studying Tagalog, which is the national language of the Philippines. And we'd read Bob Dixon's Grammar of Deerball, which is an Australian Aboriginal language. And we asked the question, what would linguistic theory look like if we started from Lakota, Tagalog, and Deerball rather than English? So rather than start with the familiar and work to the exotic, we'd start with the exotic and work back to the familiar. And when you do that, the familiar doesn't look so familiar anymore. And, and you discover that most of the categories that theories operate with are, don't necessarily hold in, for these other language types. So it gives you a new perspective on familiar uh, languages. So that was one thing. So that's why, like, um, the theory of clause structure and RRG, the theory of grammatical relations is all different from other theories is because we started from um, these rather different grammatical systems. 
Um, the other thing is that we were committed to the idea that, uh, and this is, I mean, ROG started out as a theory of grammatical relations. And the role and the reference were taken from a paper by Paul Schachter from 1977 called Role Related and Reference Related Properties of Subjects. And um, I was writing a, a paper um, and I thought I should give a name to this stuff that Bill and I were doing. And so I borrowed Schachter's um, terms. Uh, and that's where role and reference grammar comes in, is the idea that you've got semantic roles on the one hand and pragmatics, discourse pragmatics, which is the reference on the other, and that you get an interaction between these two in the constitution of grammatical relations in different languages and you get a different mix. So the grammaticalization is not the, the interaction of discourse pragmatics and semantics is different in different languages and this underlies the differences in grammatical systems. That, that sort of brings me to, to ask because um, I know that there's, there's this sort of questioning maybe, not just in the field of linguistics but in the field of science in general, that a lot of science is based on, well, is based on weird people, right? So that's Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And I think it's really interesting that, that you sort of looked at the, the, the way that language was studied, which was, as you say, you know, like trying to compare all other languages to Latin or Greek or whatever. And you said, well, no, how about if we start with something weird? And like... Do you think that this has had a really negative effect on maybe the study of language in the past, you know, 50 or 100 years? You mean this this uh, taking Indo-European as a starting point? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's led to a particular point of view. So, um, and it's, and this is something that linguists like Franz Boas talked about way back in 1911 that um, languages don't necessarily, the categories you find in languages, um, there are categories that we think are essential, like tense, which are missing in other languages. And the other languages have categories that aren't part of Indo-European languages. So when you start from Indo-European, you are in a sense committing yourself to a set of categories that may not work cross-linguistically. I mean, one of the, we talked about sort of Worfian effects. Well, I think there's Worfian effects on linguistic theory in that it's hard to imagine a Russian speaker, a Slavic speaker coming up with a theory based on rigid phrase structure. And it's equally un difficult to imagine that an English speaker would come up with a theory of communicative dynamism um, 
like the Czechs did. I mean, those theories reflect properties of the native language of the, the theoretician. But, but Roland reference grammar can account most, you know, can account for variation in, in all languages? We try. I mean, it's, it, the, um, again, to go back to the thing I said earlier about the more semantically motivated something is, the less cross-linguistic variation, uh, the basic pieces of clause structure in RRG, the nucleus, the core, the clause, those are semantically motivated constructs and they're universal, even though they may be realized by an independent verb with independent noun phrases or uh, a verb carrying pronominal markers like an American Indian language, for example, or a Bantu language. Um, the same distinct fundamental distinctions are there. They're just realized morphosyntactically in different ways. I mean, would it be, would it be unfair if, if I sort of look at this diagram where I, I see this link between kind of syntax and, and semantics, I mean, would it be fair to simplify that even further and say that it's almost the relationship between thought and, and words? The idea of the linking algorithm, it's supposed to represent an, in an idealized form what you and I are doing when we use language. So I'm, as a speaker, I'm, map, I'm formulating messages, coming up with a semantic representation of those messages, mapping that into the syntax and uttering it. So that's semantics to syntax linking. You, as the hearer, are parsing what I'm saying, giving rise to a syntactic structure, which you then map into a semantic structure, which gives you the meaning of my utterance. Um, so the linking from semantics to syntax and syntax to semantics is meant to be an idealization of what speakers and hearers do. I, I know that you've looked a little bit at, at aphasic um, participants, a little bit, right? Do, do, you, do you know anything about um, why it is that, that people can have this kind of passive, so much passive language? So you could say they have, what, passive semantics? And, but yet they might have a lot of difficulty converting that into, into syntax. I mean, the, re the research that we did back in the 80s and early 90s on aphasia showed a number of things. One was that um, this area, broad, anterior Broadman's area 22, which is the part of the temporal lobe uh, before auditory cortex, um, was involved in syntactic processing and seemed to have, um, uh, was also involved in the processing of music, um, which involved, both involve complex structural relationships. Um, the thing that I found most intriguing about the fact that <clears throat> damaged 
I mean, we had patients who had Broca's area damage and no anterior 22 damage, and they didn't have very severe impairments. But if they had anterior 22 damage and no Broca's damage, it was much worse. It was much, their, their impairment was much worse. What I find intriguing is the following. Broadman's areas are defined in terms of cell architecture. So a given Broadman's area means you've got a part of the brain where the cells all have the same structure. And anterior 22 is, um, like I said, before primary auditory cortex. Posterior 22, which has the same cell architecture, is better known as Wernicke's area which is where involved in, in semantics and understanding. So the same cell architecture processes syntax and semantics, which I find um, a very appealing fact. So there's, there's some kind of, um, there's, some, there's a, a deep connection there. Yeah, exactly. You've got the same kind of brain cells processing syntax and semantics, which is very amenable to my view of the world. Um, so, well, I know that, that another part of, of role and reference grammar, because I have a, another page from, from your kind of your PDF, which talks about the, well, the six different classes. So you have states, activities, semifactives, achievements, accomplishments, and, and active accomplishments. And, and these, these are, are a core part of RRG, is that, is that right? The, these are called Aktionsart distinctions, and Aktionsart is just a German word, means form of action. And they were originally proposed by a philosopher named Zeno Wendler. Uh, on the basis of English data, he proposed uh, the distinction between states, activities, achievements which were punctual changes of state like shatter or explode and accomplishments which were non-punctual changes of state so melt freeze recover from illness um, and we another linguist by the name of david dowdy proposed a formalization of vendler's distinctions which we used as the basis for our lexical representation um, because one of the things that we wanted to have was a semantic representation that actually represented some of the semantics i know that sounds kind of funny but um, most theories operate with a very minimal semantic representation and we wanted something more substantive. Um, uh, and so we, bar we adopted Dowdy's de decompositional uh, reinterpretation of Vendler. Uh, and basically, after 15 years, I went back to Vendler and the result is the system you describe. Um, took Vindler's categories, 
added symbol factors, which had been argued for by a linguist from the University of Texas, and active accomplishments, which is an, an RRG notion. Um, and then uh, came up with the current scheme, and it's, it's the starting point for an RRG analysis of a language. The first thing you have to do when you're approaching a, a language from an RRG point of view is work out the verb classes because that semantic representation is going to be the input to the linking. And uh, a lot of uh, phenomena are handled in the semantics in RRG uh, because basically the, the RRG point of view is that semantics drives grammar. Uh, and so having a, a substantive semantic representation um, with, with principles that, um, uh, how shall I say, it's a principled, Decomp it's a principled representation. There are tests that tell you something's an activity, something's a state, something's an achievement. And that tells you that this is what the representation for this verb in this sentence has to be. It's not just up to the whim of the uh, analyst. So how does, um, how do sort of external factors fit into RRG, like things like culture? That's more a question for Dan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, because if, if, if uh, semantics drives grammar, then, then I suppose, I don't know, maybe the next conclusion would be that, um, that then you're, you know, if you believe that culture affects language, then culture must affect, culture must drive semantics. It certainly has an influence on it. Definitely. Um, Yes, I, I did a paper published way back in 1981 on called Meaning and Interpretation that talked about late, Heidegger, late Wittgenstein and early Heidegger's notions of meaning and how they interacted with um, uh, socioculture, sociocultural factors. I would say that these things are important, but I can't claim to have worked out a way to represent how that influence works. Well, I don't know if there are any grammars that exist that kind of explicitly account for culture, right? I mean, it's not, they tend not to, not to account for, you know, the kind of soft, the soft end of language, right? The soft sciences. It would be in a link between language and cognition, sort of general. I mean, your cu cultural knowledge informs your linguistic usage. And I mean, you have this notion that a lot of people have talked about called common ground, like what you assume, what you assume and what you assume that your interlocutor assumes. Um, as taken for granted. Um, and that can be the linguistic context, but it can also be the cultural background. Um, 
So we assume a lot of shared cultural background. And so we don't have to make a lot of things explicit. And the more we share, the less explicit we have to be. That's an observation that goes back to the 60s. The more in-group the conversation, the, the more that's the less explicit it is because it, you can um, b bank on your fellow group members understanding what you're referring to, whereas someone from outside the group would be lost. So I wanted to, 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 to move on to talk a little bit about some specific um, research. And so I have this, this, this paper here, which is um, Planning Units in Tagalog Sentence Production. Evidence from eye tracking, which was with Sebastian Sop and Elizabeth Norcliffe, Agnieszka Konopka, and Stephen Levinson. And I think it was really interesting to me about kind of the question. The question was, how, how does the brain produce a sentence when maybe the first part of the sentence relies on information that, that comes in the second part of the sentence? Right. Well, that's a that's a real issue in Tagalog because the semantic function of an argument of the argument marked by ang is coded in the verb, but the noun phrase that has that function is typically the last the last noun phrase in the clause. So you've got to do some planning. Um, and that's what Sebastian was looking at, seeing how, how um, speakers gaze, looking at pictures, uh, anticipated um, um, where, they were, where the sentence was going. I mean, Tagalog has been the focus of a lot of research. I have a, a project at the University of Dusseldorf on, on information structure uh, that includes Tagalog as one of my colleagues. My co-PI um, is an expert on Tagalog and she um, has been investigating Tagalog information structure. Uh, but that was Sebastian's uh, dissertation research, part of his dissertation research. Um, and he did some really path-breaking work on eye tracking. And uh, I don't think anybody had ever looked at Philippine languages in this way before. And uh, it's quite impressive work. Yeah, I think it's just, it's, it's fascinating. And, and a question I'm going to ask you, and again, and again, I know this is, you know, maybe not a question you get asked very often, but like knowing what you know about the way that, um, you know, languages work, especially from an RRG perspective, if, if you were going to, to learn a language, how would you approach it? Well, I mean, being a linguini, um, I... <laughs> I would approach it, I probably would approach it, you know, like 
like I would if I were analyzing it. Start with the verb semantics and work my way up to discourse. Uh, but that's not very practical. That's not a very practical approach. But it would uh, give me both uh, a, an analysis and some speaking competence. If if there's a larger question of what could ROG do for language teaching, I suspect that the fact that many phenomena are explained in semantic terms rather than in uh, abstract syntactic terms is something that uh, can be paraphrased for non-specialists to appreciate. Like the thing I said about reflexive binding, um, you know, the doer, the doer binds the done to, basically. You could put it in those terms and you would always get the right, the right result. Uh, I mean, I don't know how difficult it is to teach people reflexive pronouns but well i mean i think i think it depends on their their kind of native language you know because like for example for an english speaker to look at spanish reflexive verbs for example i know they're not pronouns but well they sort of are but you know that's that's to an english speaker it's kind of a bit weird because we don't have reflexive verbs that work in the same way. No, not at all. So being able to abstract the, the concept and say, well, it's about binding, I think that could definitely be useful in, in the classroom. Yeah, well, the Spanish, the romance reflexives are an interesting, um, an interesting topic. There's been a lot of written about them. And um, I have a, in a, uh, syntax text that I published in 1997 together with Randy LaPola. I've got an extensive analysis of Romance and Slavic, which run pretty much in parallel, reflexive. Uh, and the thing that um, is so interesting is that most uses of the so-called reflexive aren't reflexive. They're, they're either obligatory with the verb or they take a transitive verb and make it intransitive and you get i this example that i used to talk about was se me rompio la taza which can mean i broke my cup my cup broke on me i accidentally broke the cup um, the same string of words has a whole bunch of different interpretations and none of them are reflexive. I mean, it's either I'm the possessor of the cup or the cup broke on me. Yeah, and uh, well, as, as an English person learning Spanish, um, you know, people say the, the, the sort of general explanation for reflexive verbs in Spanish is that it's, it's basically if you can substitute self, then it's a reflexive verb. And I'm like, well, no, not really, because there are plenty of verbs where the self is doing something, but they're not reflexive. And that, you know, this logic doesn't really, as you say, it doesn't really apply. 
No, no, I've always objected to people saying the door opens itself. I mean, that's not what it means. Actually, I claimed that calling it reflexive morphology is a misnomer because that's one of the uses of it, and that's perhaps salient, but there's a much wider range of uses, and most of which aren't really reflexive, but they involve operations on the argument structure of the verb. So when you get impersonal C constructions, there's nothing reflexive about, say, habla español. <laughs> the Spanish speaks itself. Right, exactly. That's, that's not what it means. Yeah, no, exactly. Anyway, I don't know if that would help the language learner or not. Uh, people, this could be explained differently in terms of uh, take the more technical analysis and translate it into layman's terms if that's possible because you know what one of one of the the difficult things when you're learning another language is how do you you know if 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 structures are different how do you learn to 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 make that that transfer you know how do you learn to how do you learn to take something which is one way in english and and transform it into spanish um and i think rrg has has some answers well, I would hope so, but um, I'm not the one to work that out. Um, no, I, there's been some interesting work uh, done on Spanish in particular. I had a graduate student from Argentina who looked at uh, clitic doubling in Spanish where you, I mean, you normally double the dative clitic. The dative argument is represented by like, um, uh, a Pedro gusta uh, la musica. Uh, I guess you need a dative clitic in there too. Al Pedro le gusta la musica. So you've got the dative twice, and in her dialect of Spanish, you can have the accusative twice. Uh, yeah, you can have the accusative clitic together with a direct object, uh, which is called clitic doubling. And it's primarily in Latin America and not in all varieties of Latin American Spanish, more in South America. Mexico doesn't typically have it. And it's an interesting phenomenon. You've, you've, you've devoted you know, most of your life and all of your professional career to, to studying languages. And I'm wondering why, why you think that language is, is important. I mean, I hate to sound like uh, something totally banal, but gosh, it's the thing that makes us human. Uh, I mean, language <clears throat> is so crucial for uh, all aspects of human life, I mean, from cognition to social interaction, that it's hard to imagine human existence without language. That's kind of part of Dan's argument about language and, and uh, Homo erectus. They were so, they had such 
a level of reached a level of complexity in sort of social organization and technology and uh, related things that it's it's just difficult to imagine um, this could be possible without language. Yeah, it does seem it does seem far fetched, especially when you talk about things like you know like sailing, right, navigating and and yeah. making tools and, you know, I mean, <laughs> even even if you define language as things like, you know, pointing and grunting, you know, it, you're right. It, 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 it seems impossible to argue. Well, thank you. Uh, it was uh, great fun. I enjoyed it. <laughs>